0: welcome to another episode of Amaricus Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Uh, hi, Andy. Welcome back. Bienvenue. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I had 16 days in in France with, with my wife celebrating our 30th anniversary and uh, managed to get the podcast episodes out even uh, with a little help from FIRE. Thank you again um, for that uh, great discussion last week. And just a reminder that uh, America's Constitution is sponsored by Everscholar. Uh, Everscholar is completing its first year of active programs after sitting out the pandemic uh, online like many of us, and uh, programs have been all over the world now between uh, Greece, Boston, New York, and uh, next year, France. So, um, oh, and Andy, speaking of first year, we're approaching the one year mark for
1: this podcast. I think we've got maybe another month or two to go. Um, and I think at some point we'll kind of, uh, end season one, um, and, and, uh, uh launch a, a season two, um, maybe with, um, uh, some tweaks and revisions. So, uh, uh, to the audience out there, if you've got suggestions, um, for, um, either a substance or, uh, style and structure of, uh, Uh,
0: that you'd like to see in season two, um, let Andy know. Yeah, and just to remind the audience that there's a facility on the website, akilamar.com, on our podcast page, for you to leave comments. Um, You can leave verbal comments or written comments or both. And some people have done that, so please do that. Also, one other thing, uh, on Professor Amar's website, um, relating to his book, The Words That Made Us, um, we've had the opportunity to uh, we've created an opportunity for people to present errata or things that they find that are incorrect in the book or they believe are incorrect or questionable. Um, and we've said in the past that you could send an email to errata at com. There was a problem with that email address, which has been fixed. So if you tried before, you can try again and it will that'll work. Okay, so the subject of the week... Uh, in the newspapers is a subject that we've discussed before, um, the question of uh, so-called term limits for Supreme Court justices. And this is because the, uh, the Biden commission uh, on, on the Supreme Court um, has issued a draft report, not the final report. And it's been in the news. Uh, lots of people have been weighing in on it, um, including some of the commissioners uh, in public, so, uh, which is interesting. And presumably that uh, makes some fair game for for our commentary. Uh,
1: exactly, and Andy, of course, we've done previous episodes, beginning with our um, 18 arguments for 18 years, and then we revisited that um, issue when I testified before the commission in July. So this will be round three. It'll be deeper, but maybe sort of shorter than our previous conversations. And I, I know we've promised our audience that we're eventually going to come back to our conversation about um, books. I still haven't told the audience about um, uh, uh, book blurbing and, and book touring and, and selling the book through all the way to the end. Um, so, And I've actually, while you've been you know, eating raspberries and strawberries in, in Paris, I've been hard at work uh, trying to sell the book through on, on Midwestern, road trip. So I'll have some stuff to report about that. Um, But we thought, actually, since the iron was hot, since uh, the commission um, uh, is in in the news, we we should um, do that this week.
0: Yeah. And, you know, speaking of feedback from the audience, uh, we, you know, track our listening numbers and so forth. And one of the things that we noticed was when we had uh, our episode discussing the Texas abortion law, which was, we thought, timely, uh, we had a a very large increase in, in listenership. Uh, and also, people listen to a larger percentage of the podcast at once. So uh, that's telling us that you care about things that are timely. Um, and this is timely, so we're revisiting it. Um, but we're not going to rehash all of the 18 reasons that Professor Mars' uh, proposal makes sense and so forth. What we're going to do is look at really the reaction to it. Because um, in the in the media, I think the coverage, to summarize it very quickly, I would say... Uh, court packing, no term limits, maybe, um, and uh, and Biden
1: unfortunately um, said when asked on the tarmac about quote term limits unquote, are you in favor of quote term limits unquote? Apparently, said monosyllabically, no, <laughs> and that would that no would be a pretty big no. Um, but I'm not sure he's had a chance to actually digest you know all the arguments and and the final report, the final report isn't even um, uh, on his desk yet. But also, and this is important, and you were really careful earlier on, Andy, when you teed up the issue um, to say so-called term limits. Because one of my more important claims is from a strict legal point of view, what I'm proposing is not term limits. You are a justice, strictly speaking, for life. You have your title for life. You have um, your uh, duties, which are Supreme Court related for life, you have your salary for life. And so in every relevant respect, um, you are technically a justice for life, even though your your duties, your
0: responsibilities begin to shift um, at the 18 year mark. Right. I think, you know, that one of the issues that we're going to be discussing is whether or not a constitutional amendment is required Uh, to enact some of these changes, and I think most people would agree that if we were going to actually kick people out after 18 years entirely and say, you don't get paid, you don't, you know, you're no longer, you know, have a tie of the title, and so forth, that would require a constitutional amendment, but yes, which which was in my mind when I said, you know, so-called term limits, and perhaps... That was and, a- and that's because you're, set, you're you, you've got
1: a very legal mind and you, it, so it's very important if, if you had been in court I think you would have said so-called term limits. and in fact um, if folks want to read my testimony which we're gonna um, uh, upload yet again they will see that that was my, my first point was actually a note on terminology to say strictly speaking this isn't term limps, even though I myself in in previous, um uh, conversations um have uh, sometimes
0: used the the term limits shorthand right and perhaps you know that's what was in president biden's mind thinking you know let's hope (laughs) yeah well you know seriously i mean people don't always give him enough credit but he i you know remember when the when there was questions of impeachment that he sought uh briefing from you know an expert that we're familiar with on constitutional law um yourself and uh and you know, so he takes these things seriously, and he, he may have been briefed on the difference. And so he may be opposed to a constitutional amendment because, after all, you know he, he wouldn't want to spend the political capital required to, uh, assuming it even it would be sitting in the realm of the possible. Um, so that, uh, who knows? And plus, this is early. There's no final draft and so forth. Um, okay. So first, I think it makes sense to... Uh, we're. Let's talk about what, um, you know, pundits and others have said uh, in reporting this. Um, and I think these have fallen into two categories. There have been, you know, some experts um, that have that have opined, and then there's commentators. So, for example, I think in the latter category, there is a, would be someone like uh, Jennifer Rubin, you know, who had a column, uh, an op-ed in the uh, Washington Post on this. So, you know, an educated, you know, learned person, but not a so an expert. On the other hand, the the Washington Post ran an op-ed um, by a judge on the Fourth Circuit. And uh, perhaps we might start there.
1: Um, absolutely. And note, audience um, uh, uh, listeners, that um, what Andy just did is so connected to what we talked about before, um, about um, uh, expertise, uh, about uh, uh, frankly, credentials and which I said um, uh, uh, can be connected to issues of of citations and other metrics of um, expertise. And and so, in fact, as we walk through some of the arguments, we're also going to tell you who's made them and how to think about them. And and at the end of the day, um, President Biden is uh, and other decision makers are probably going to get some conflicting um, uh, opinions, and they'll have to try to weigh to some extent not just the substance. Of these conflicting opinions, but whom they're coming from, and and uh, conflicting uh, claims of of respective expertise.
0: Okay, so um, in the expert category, um, we have a uh, a column by Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson. And right. So this um, is- And let me
1: let me just say something about um,
0: uh, uh, J. Harvey
1: Wilkinson. J. Harvey, officially J. Harvey Wilkinson III. Um, who is a very distinguished um, judge on the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, which is basically um, the, the Upper South, um, uh, um, paradigmatically Virginia. He, um, J. Harvey Wilkinson himself is a, a Virginian. I want to just say a few things about him. I'm going to be somewhat critical of the op ed, but I want our audience to know that I love him. He's been a friend for many, many years. You will not meet a sweeter fellow. He's not just a judge and a very distinguished one um, who sends lots of his clerks to the United States Supreme Court. He's a proverbial feeder. Um, many of his clerks have been some of my best students. I've sent many of my best students to him over the years. So he's not just a judge, but way back when, um, with life tenure, way back when, he was actually a law professor um, with life tenure at the University of Virginia. Um, and he has in addition to all that, cause he's got the most impeccable manners in the world. He's, you know, very much a Southern gentleman. He himself uh, clerked uh, for the Supreme court for another Southern gentleman, Lewis Powell, um, Virginian. Um, but, um, uh, also Andy, um, you and I should have a special spot in our hearts for him because
0: he's a Yale college graduate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And okay. So, um, why don't we look at the, at the article? Um, he starts off, uh, And and tell our
1: audience which day this is,
0: Andy? This is on the 17th, so two days ago. We're taping this on October 19th, so the day before it's going to go up. Again, the timely category. Um, So just two days ago it was written, or at least was posted. And uh, he starts off, you know, criticizing it uh, by saying imposing term limits on Supreme Court justices is, is a terrible idea. And then he adds another critique by saying that it threatens to become more popular by the day.
1: <laughs> That's his first sentence. Yes. Imposing term
0: limits on Supreme court justices is a terrible idea that threatens to become more popular by the day. And actually it's interesting that he mentions that because I think we, we can start off by, by noting who has supported it in the past. Now, obviously, uh, and of course he's using the, the term term limits. And we've yes. discussed that. Uh, Correct. Yes. But, so, so maybe
1: maybe you know it's just a narrow narrow point about uh, about strictly speaking term limits, which I'm not proposing. You know there. Um. Uh, uh, so so, but I, I I think actually when you read his piece, he's got uh, other objections that that go to the heart of my uh, uh, proposal and not merely formal term limits.
0: Although I I think this is a you know perhaps a little sloppy on the part of the judge because. You know, if he, he, he's referring to the report, the draft report of the commission, and he says that the draft expresses sympathy for the idea of doing away with lifetime tenure. And it, it just doesn't do that, you know. So,
1: and the draft
0: does cite
1: me, I think, repeatedly. And oh boy, and we'll put um, up on the website once again my testimony. The first thing out of the box I say. Is strictly speaking, the, uh, not term limits. A note on terminology: it's not term limits, and that's very important, actually, for the constitutionality of the idea, if done as a mere statute.
0: Um, but uh, in terms of um, who's supported it, there have been several sitting justices of the on the Supreme Court that have expressed uh, support for it.
1: And uh, many academics had uh, expressed support, and I actually cite them in my testimony, uh, dozens across the spectrum, um, uh, for earlier iterations of of my idea. And some of those early versions, once again, were uh, very clearly mere statutes that, um, strictly, strictly speaking, work term limits here to repeat. Under the Amar 18-year plan, you're a justice for life. You hold your title for life. You have Supreme Court-related duties for life, you get paid for life, or to be even more um, strict, good
0: behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes on to, to include the the commission by, by quoting the commission, saying, in fact, in its survey of the existing literature on Supreme Court term limits, the commission discovered few works arguing against term limits, unquote. So he's he's now established that a lot of people think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. And then he says, let me help fill that void. So he's going to point out how he thinks it's a bad idea. Right. Um, And he says that, um, then he just says that he's against it in various ways. Mm -hmm. Um, It won't cure the faults. It'll make the institution appear more, not less political in the eyes of the public. Confirmation battles will become more numerous, but no less feverish. Because eighteen years is long enough to inflame partisan confirmation passions, especially if the court is closely divided. So that's, I think, the first substantive point that he's making here: mm-hmm. um, the, the idea that that eighteen years is not, for example, twelve years, um, which the commission talks about about the possibility of twelve years. Yeah.
1: Now, eighteen um, is a perfect number because of its relationship to nine, and in fact conservatives might like the idea that 18 as a practical matter will tend to solidify nine, that the number of nine justices uh, because of the interaction between the number 18 and the number nine and actually pour cold water on a more radical court placking plan. So, um, but, but what he says, as, as you um, uh, paraphrased, is confirmation battles will become more numerous, but no less feverish because 18 is long enough to inflame partisan confirmation passes. So I would say, oh, I think they will be somewhat less Beaverish. Yes, they would be more numerous if the average tenure on the court today is longer than 18, which it has been in recent decades, in part because of um, uh, improvements in, in longevity and, and medical technology, uh, 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 geriatrics. Um, but over the course of much of American history, actually, the average tenure hasn't been um, longer than 18, and, and it's worked pretty well. Um, uh, but he's saying, okay, they're going to be more numerous now because people sit longer, okay, but no less feverish. And the no less seems to be an uncharacteristic exaggeration for, for my friend, Judge Wilkinson, who, who usually is actually a, a more sober and careful person. Because um, let's think about the extreme. Wouldn't a confirmation be less feverish if it were for two years, let's say? Um, uh, On the one hand, and and much more fraught if it were for 40 years on the other hand, well, yes, if people would fight a lot more about a two-year term on the court than a 40-year term on the court, I think it would be somewhat less feverish. It it won't be um, uh, tepid or lukewarm, um, but it'll be somewhat less feverish um, if it's for 18 um, rather than for a, a, a possible 35 or 40 um, Andy, in conversations offline, you said, and another thing is, um, the uncertainty is reduced because it's a certain 18, no more than 18. At any event, someone could could die or retire um, fewer than that, no more than 18. So that also makes you a little bit less fevered because again, it's not forever um and because this creates a sort of a very regular replenishment system um i think there'll be more of an attitude a little bit more at the margins of okay we lost but wait till next year um there's going to be a new appointment in two years and one after that in four years and and if our team wins the presidency the next time around we'll get our turn you and i are baseball fans and you're the one who told me i actually I, i couldn't stay up late enough that um, my beloved San Francisco Giants um, lost on a very questionable call on the last um, uh, pitch um, uh, against the the, the Dodgers, uh, a, a supposed uh, um, uh, a third strike on a, a supposed a failed check swing that the instant replay showed really you know was a proper check swing and it was a ball, not a not you know a third strike and the third out in the bottom of the ninth inning in a one run game. Okay, but. We baseball fans, we San Francisco Giants fans can still tell ourselves, well, wait till next year. This may, you know, um, um, and, and, and we didn't start marauding in the streets. And one of the reasons we didn't is because we know that there will be, you know, predictably another one and not too far away next year. So I think they'll be less feverish because um, the losers can say, not wait till next year, but wait till two years from now. One final thought. Because um, I honestly wonder whether J. Harvey Wilkinson read my testimony, because I'm not so sure he did. If he had, um, and again, he had only so much space in the Washpo. um, op-eds are short. But another feature of uh, my proposal, and he talks about it, it, this is a staggered replenishment of the court, is that the staggering, the replenishment would occur in years one and three, by design, of every four-year presidential term. And those are the least feverish times of our political calendar. Uh, It's much more fevered um, in in, in years 2 and 4, because those are congressional election years and presidential election years, respectively. So mine, I'm not saying it won't ever be feverish, but I do think it will be less feverish. And he says, no, it will be no less feverish. And that seems to me a real exaggeration on his part.
0: You know, if, when you think, I think if you look at the psychology of, of the way that it's set up now, there's a sense, and you used the word earlier, you said forever. But of course, the justices don't sit forever. They they eventually, you know, die or retire. Um, but it feels like they sit forever. Yes. Um, and, and also, it feels like they have some agency in how long they're going to sit. You know, that they're going to sit longer if particular. It, it would be particularly fraught to uh, to replace them. Um, this would. This is a much different psychology. You know, you know that in two years there's going to be another justice. This is not yeah. the last war, you know, yeah. that you, that you're going to you For We're certain I, you know that. Yeah. You're
1: guaranteed that, and it's possible there could be something even sooner if there were an early resignation um, um, or death or something.
0: Right. So, anyway, so I think certainly he's – He's kind of asserting it and not proving it. Yeah. Um, no. Again, so- it's an
1: it's an op-ed. Mm-hmm. You know, he only has so much space, but um, he could have worded it more carefully. And again, I'm not sure he's really um, um, countered uh, my my uh, my arguments. I, I st- I'm still um, uh, sticking with uh, my initial position on that. His next sentence, Andy, is the change would leave the court shorthanded too often if confirmation delays set in. That risks leaving the court with an even number of eight members, I hardly an ideal composition for any institution predicated on majority rule. But if he had read my testimony, he would know that I actually say that after 18 years, you're still on the court. And indeed, whenever the court is short-staffed, you pinch hit. And predictably, they're going to be actually emeritus justices in, in my regime, you know, quite predictably at, at the beginning, almost guaranteed because the number will initially increase for a while um, before it settles down to nine. So it's exactly the case that, in fact, my proposal will eliminate shorthanded courts, which now do exist if someone rotates off for some reason, death or resignation. Um, there's, there's no e- immediate repla- replacement. But in fact, my proposal has a specific provision um, um, for um, uh, emeritus justices senior justices, uh, pinch hitting to make sure the court is never shorthanded, um, not just um, um, in cases of of, uh, death or retirement, but recusal in any given case.
0: You know, I think that it's
1: it's the exact opposite of what
0: he says. Well, there's another benefit to this proposal of yours, uh, which I I don't think we've discussed or I don't think I've read about it before it occurs to me now. You know, after we after reading and we're jumping ahead here, but in the commission's report uh, and the question of whether or not. You would need a constitutional amendment as opposed to a statute um, to enact this uh, proposal. One of the claims is that there's an office of, and we're going to get to this, but there's an office of justice of the Supreme Court, and that the essence of that office is that you have the ability to sit in and and decide, you know, sit in in, in the on bunk, you know, with yeah. with the court. So actually, under this proposal, you're not entirely removing that privilege. I
1: preserve that. And oh, thank you for noticing, Andy, because, you know, I'm, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Law trained. I'm, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? An expert on this. I've thought about this for actually more than 18 years. My initial op-ed, floating this idea in the Washington Post of all places, was, you know, in 2002, so, th- that's a constitutive part of, of my proposal is that in um, substance um, and form, you are a Supreme Court justice for life. And one of the reasons that it is substantively true is you are available to pinch, in, pinch it on um, but there are also other. Purely Supreme Court functions for only Supreme Court justices that you would be eligible to perform administrative, ceremonial, docket management um, for, for the, the, uh, the lawyers out there, assert um, 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 the, uh, 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 granting. It um, um, uh, could play a role in Supreme, a special role, perhaps helping masters and magistrates in the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction, which many of the justices don't pay much attention to. And those are all, and there are others in addition classic supreme court functions as such we don't have actually in general lower court um, uh, justices pinching at the supreme court um, when it's short-staffed or um, helping to decide certain petitions or doing supreme court ceremonial and administrative stuff which is part of the job to repeat of a supreme court justice that was all very carefully put into my proposal which is why Honestly, I wonder whether my friend, um, Judge Wilkinson, actually read my testimony.
0: So, we'll, you know, we'll come back to that. But I, since you mentioned this fact that emeritus judges, justices can sit in a uh, pinch hit. And as yes. an answer to this, I thought that it was relevant. Okay. So, um, so what does he say next? It's easy to imagine strategic
1: games the justices may be tempted to engage in. Um, uh before so and so you know smuggling through such and such a precedent or overruling it before so and so leaves the bench. He's right. Um, but that's true today. you know you can you know look ac- you know uh, in the robing room or across the bench and notice that 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 uh, justice or chief justice so and so you know seems to be sagging a little bit. You can possibly predict it's not a, it's not rocket science to guess that Justice Breyer may very well step down. The end of this term, Andy. You and I had a whole episode on that, and, and boy, you gave as good as you got. Frankly, maybe better um, uh, in that conversation. So we're already in a world where there can be, you know, certain kinds of strategic games being played in light of likely changes in court composition. And moreover, um, uh, I'm not pulling out of my own backside an idea of um, um, rotation um, uh, because um, uh, uh, our state Supreme courts, many of our best state Supreme courts have actually um, fixed terms um, and or mandatory retirement at certain ages. um, And they work just fine. Um, Mine is a Brandeisian proposal that takes seriously state laboratories of experimentation and actually our best, Um, um, state Supreme Courts, you know, um, do have um, fixed dates on which existing justices are going to leave. Um, And um, so he's kind of um, now who's fevered um, with all due respect, you know, yours truly soberly looking at the actual experience of actual American judiciaries, our best ones at the state level. Um, I'm not saying they're better than the federal, but our best state courts have actually formal term limits and age limits. um, And in general, the strategic aimsmanship that Judge Wilkinson worries about haven't been a problem.
0: You know, I think also, you know, if one were to respond to that, one might say, well, it's different at the national level. Uh, You know, the the uh, confirmation process is more fraught and so forth. So perhaps looking at other countries as well, and right, at their national and that, level, and there we have a similar situation.
1: Right, we do, and he poo-poo's that later in his op-ed. I'm so glad you mentioned. He says, "Oh, what do we have to learn from you know Britain or Germany or Italy or France or um uh, um India or Japan? You, you know, um, and I think we can learn a lot from other regimes. that We don't have to slavishly you know um, uh, follow them, but but it is relevant that, and several of the of the witnesses mentioned this before the commission, especially the comparative law experts like Tom, professors Tom Ginsburg and Professor Vicki Jackson, that no major democracy actually has a, a, a pure a lifetime model, of full active. Service so it reminds me of that scene in The Princess Bride. Um, you know, um, Judge Wilkins's kind of poo pooing of of Germany, France, you know, um, England, and and their experience. It's like in The Princess Bride when the Wallace Shawn character says, "You know, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, morons." <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so I think you know we we can learn from states, uh, the best ones. Some states actually have bad judiciaries with. Um, par- pol- partisan, that is, you know, political party, contested elections, I don't like that. But, but some of the best states, many of them, have age limits and formal term limits, and it hasn't been a problem. Um, his next sentence, Andy, um, um, is, you know, he, he um, asks a good question. While the proponents of term limits envision a smooth and orderly opening of vacancies, What happens when a justice dies or strategically retires before the expiration of his or her term? Oh, gee, if only I'd thought about that. Oh, wait a minute. I did, and I address it in considerable detail in my proposal and my testimony, and it actually, with all due respect, Jay, it cuts precisely the other way. So first, I say if there is a vacancy, um, it's just filled um, by a replace what I call a replacement justice just for the remaining period of the original 18-year term the rump so to speak so if a vacancy occurs in year 15 the replacements going to serve just the remaining three the vacancy um, occurs at year 17 the the the, 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 uh, the replacement justice will just serve one year it's exactly like the Senate um, which has fixed six-year terms and and and, and a staggered um, replenishment, replenishment every two years, unless someone dies or retires, in which case there's a there's a replacement senator, just like that. Okay, so um, but he says, you know, what if you strategically retire? Oh, gotcha there, because it's the exact opposite. With all due respect, Jay, today justices strategically retire on the watch of a of a, a president whose vision they happen to admire, and that's acting politically. Today they can do that. In a Mars world, if you try to strategically retire early, what have you gotten? At best, you get a perfect clone to replace yourself, you know, if if it's a mere strategic retirement, you could have stayed yourself. So, you know, if you you have yourself for 18 years or at best, 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 if you try to strategically retire, you have someone that you hope will be a lot like you for the remainder of your 18-year term. So this actually... Um, solves in general, the problem of strategic retirement. That's what makes it a better system that we have today. With all due respect, Jay, did you read my testimony? I know that's very fierce, but you're my friend and, and you're entering the public um, a space with this op-ed and you have a standing invitation to come on our podcast um, and push back, um, the way Philip Bobbitt came and, 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 and push back and and others have come and, and Gordon Wood, and, 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 and push back. We would love to have you on the podcast, but I actually think that 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 question that you asked was actually a bad, I mean, it's a question that undercut your own argument powerfully.
0: So does the, uh, do you have like a lifo? I, I, I forget. I so like last in, first out on the, or do you have the president select I among have a whole the emeritus? System. Yes, I, I actually have
1: the most senior. Um, so I, I have emeritus justices who can pinch it, um, and mm-hmm. if the emeritus justices aren't available to pinch it. Um, then you know you could have replacement justices, but, uh, but among
0: the emeritus justices, um, it,
1: I think in order of actually their seniority. Right.
0: Okay. Yes. Um,
1: mm-hmm. I, 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 but you could change that if you wanted. You could you could m- modify all of that. But but again, um, um. So here's the one thing that you don't get with a strategic retirement. You don't get to basically lengthen. You're allotted mm-hmm. 18 years of of you know general um, of of full on bank influence. You either do it yourself, or you know at best you know you you do it by proxy um, by someone that you hope will will actually vote as you would have voted. Uh, so th- th- that means there's almost no strategic benefit at all to to um, uh, you know uh, a retirement. Whereas today, again by contrast, you're not going to live forever. Um, but um, with um, a strategic retirement you get another you know 30 uh, 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 when you retire when there's a like-minded president and a like-minded Senate you get to project your influence for another you know predicted 20 or 30 years what another- happens yeah.
0: at the end of the term if the Congress hasn't uh, approved the replacement who do you stay on or does someone? To uh, one of the emeritus justices. No, when, when your time replaces? is over,
1: you're off, and then there's the court is short-staffed, and again, uh, the emeritus justices are available to um, fill in um, uh, for short staffing.
0: So you could see where that could create incentives for Congress to not approve a justice um, if, if you know, you have a mechanized system, and it's apparent that the justice that would take over on January twentieth or whatever is. Uh, is not of the same uh, party as the president current president um, that the 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 Congress could say oh if we don't Senate says we don't approve this justice we're going to that was appointed by a president of the other party now he's going to be out of office and we don't uh, so then we're going to get Justice X who is of our party um, so therefore we're going to just vote against whoever he puts up.
1: Yeah, or it could be the other way around. Um, of but course, one thing that you
0: have it. is by having it in year three rather than year four, it makes it harder to do that because they have yeah, to wait and, a long and, time. and in
1: any event, it's, a, it's just a little bit more predictable. You, you know um, what, the, what the system is. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, again, to repeat, it it, it it works pretty well in our best states. Yes. Okay. Which is going to be my answer to almost all of these things. These are theoretical objections. It's, it's like what they say, you know, at the Yale Law School. Well, that works in practice, but does it work in theory?
0: <laughs> right. Now, um, so next he goes into the question of the uh, the age of the nominees. Yes. Um, one of the arguments for term limits is that the
1: current system encourages presidents to select unduly youthful nominees to maximize the time they'll have on the bench. What in the world is wrong with youth? Um, youthful nominees add intellectual vitality and generational diversity to the bench. Um, the past seven justices were 48, 53, 49, 50, 54, 55, and 50 when nominated. Um, um, so, so he says, you know, what's wrong with youthful nominees? And I'm saying, actually, um, and Andy, you're the one who helped me see this really clearly in our offline uh, prep for this um, uh, meeting. You can if if they're the best folks around, nothing prevents you from nominating them under under my regime as well. Um, uh, And um, um, so so the real point is um, that uh, the current system might give um, uh, uh, presence incentives to pick people even younger than that, um, uh, just in order to maximize their their years of influence. Um, And and uh, and we may be spiraling into a system of 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 picking people, you know, uh, too young. But um, uh, uh, again, if if the best one out there is 37 years old, you can pick her under my uh, regime as well. Um, The real problem, truthfully, is at the other end of the age spectrum that people are staying too long. And and, um, and I say most of the justices, I'm actually with Jay Harvey, most of the justices do their best thinking actually early in their careers and and not so much late in their careers. Um, So the real problem is um, the gerontocracy at the other end. Um, And that's actually what his next uh, point is. He says, as for the danger of declining mental powers remaining on the court, uh, I'm sorry, the danger of justices with declining mental powers remaining on the court, there exists a plethora of internal and external pressures that can readily, de- readily be deployed in the service of a dignified exit. That in a word is is, you know, either, you know, wishful thinking or a myth or harsher still a lie. Um, we've had lots of problems with justices who are too old. Now, if, 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 the problem is extreme you know, someone who's just doddering. Yeah, there are internal and, and informal pressures. But read the brethren. Um, William Douglas refused to step down, basically, and so the other justices like made an informal agreement among themselves that they'd never allow him to cast the decisive um, uh, um, ninth vote, um, uh, fifth vote on, on uh, you know for one side or the other if they were divided four four. But that was all just. A very troubling uh, improvisation because you do have a problem. The problem is that people don't totally perceive their deterioration. And even so, maybe you can deal with the most extreme situations, you know, with a plethora of internal and external pressures, maybe. Um, but what about just? Decline that's short of that. What about the reality for many people? They're better in their 40s, 50s, and 60s than they are in their late 70s and 80s. Um, And um, if that's a general truth, you know, um, even if not true in every individual case, and if decrepitude sneaks upon you, uh, uh, you know, unawares a little bit gradually. And you and I talked offline about, since you're an ophthalmologist, myopia and how it seemed to just creep on me. I didn't realize, you know, when I was in fourth grade that my eyesight was deteriorating because you know, I wake up every day and it doesn't seem so different than the day before. It's not as if one day I wake up and, oh, my God, I my eyesight is, has deteriorated 30%. Well, if that's true of cognitive capacity, if it's gradually deteriorating and, and not to the point of being doddering, but it's not as, you're not as good at 80 as you were at 50, well, if that's true of lots and lots of people, then maybe an 18-year idea about, you know, um, uh, uh, uh is a good one you're on the court thereafter you're available to do all sorts of other things but maybe things that matter less than being each and every day the decisive the possible decisive vote um on um, bonk and you know andy that i've worried aloud with you a lot about whether my latest book is as good as books that i wrote in my um, 30s and, 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 and 40s. Um, and I'm relieved to tell you, um, uh, the audience, that at least so far readers tend to think it is. Um, and, and, some, and, and, and I've had s- s- readers, some of them um, uh, just in general, uh, Goodreads and, and Amazon.com, and some of the people I most respect, you know, from Andy Lipka on down, careful readers, um, have also said they like this better. Um, uh, Andy knows that I've gotten some really generous emails um, from very prominent people who have read this book and say, this is really good, but I worried. Um, have I lost a step? Am I as, as strong at 63 as I was at, 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 at 43 or 48? Um, and, and I'm still worrying Andy, you know, will I
0: still have it at 73? you know How about 78? How about 83? And actually, I think that uh, in the in the case of this particular uh, point by the judge, um, you have to look at the way these things interact. So for example, we're talking about a justice that stays on the court when they are you know doddering okay and, and they're doing and so they might do it just because they want to be on the court, they like being on the court they they want to make a mark you know and so forth but they also might be doing it because they don't like the president, yes. you know, the current president. And now, first of all, do we want, who gets to pick the justices? The, ultimately, we want the people to have something to say about that. Um, and the people vote for the president. They don't vote for, the, you know, for, for, the, for this justice to, to make that decision. Um, as so that's that's one point so you have a democratic deficit you know uh, when that justice stays on the court uh, in addition to you know what, what and and that creates an additional incentive for them to do it when you have this other problem that they may mm-hmm. not be as good a justice to begin with you know mm-hmm. at that point so so these things work together and it and then finally you know I, with all due respect if these internal and external pressures could readily have been deployed then why is Justice Breyer still on the court and why did, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg stay on as long as, as she did, yes. you know, uh, given the political realities, you know, yeah. and so forth. So where, where are these internal and external right. pressures? Right. The, um, I,
1: so I, I, I'm with you on this stuff. I worry about that myself and Andy, you know, I do, because we've had, you know, I keep asking, am I losing a step? Am I losing a step? Um, you know, how does this book compare to my previous books? Um, and, and I'm only 63. And, and I'm worried about whether this new one is as good as the other ones. And I, I'm actually happy to report. I personally think it is. But again, you don't perceive your own deterioration, all this. Only, you know, your friends will be able to tell you that.
0: And we actually have a solution for this problem. It's called Scholar. <laughs> so you come and you measure yourself against the best faculty and the best um scholars you know uh the best students the most motivated people um and it's not a competition but what we find time and again is actually uh when you do immerse yourself in the intellectual world that uh you've got more than you think but anyway that 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 might be counter to your point but but there so go. I, I, I think we've actually
1: covered um, most of uh, Jay's biggest points. Were there any others that you wanted to highlight? We're going to post his piece, of course, on uh, the Akilomar.com website.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's most of it. He talked about uh, the, the one other point I think that's worth addressing briefly, because the commission goes there as well, is the question of um, what will term limited justices do after they're out of office, that it would be unseemly, that they might have, you know, a conflict of interest. They're trying to impress, you know, people in industry or politics right. or whatever. Um, and, and, if- and, and I have two thoughts on that, or three. One, remember, I'm not making up
1: this idea our best states do it, point one. Point two, actually, in my model, you are a justice for life, and you have lots of important things to do, um, uh, writing cert, uh, circuit, um, uh, pinch-hitting, um, helping uh, the Supreme Court pick its cases. That is a administrative stuff, ceremonial stuff. Um, uh, you can help out, especially in the, on the original jurisdiction side of the docket. My proposal actually is the sitting active justices help determine the duty roster for the senior justices. And in the process of doing that, they're determining their duty rosters for themselves as individuals, you know, uh, post um um 18 years um and so they are gonna you know uh, i think be in a very good position to to come up with with some things that they think they'll be good at doing and will like doing in their in their um se- senior years
0: right i mean i i doubt we're going to see the specter of 18 year supreme court justices who are likely to be somewhat older anyway um than the the current uh, when the current ones get appointed as the as Judge Wilkinson says. Well, what, they're, what they're actually going to
1: do is, is write lots of books. Right, exactly. Um, I don't think and, you're going to see and, them as
0: lobbyists and and so forth. And and I'm not sure that they really would have they're, they're, influence and they're, anyway. They're, and they're not going
1: to want to be ex-justices. They're want to want to be sitting justices, senior justices, writing books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you one other thing. Oh, I'm, but their books may not always be great, um, truth be told, because um, actually that might not be their comparative advantage, but I still want to hear what they have to say.
0: Right, I mean, we can look at what justices that have retired have done. Yes, right. I mean, like uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and Justice Stevens. You know,
1: Justice Souter, and 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 many of them actually are writing circuit. I, I have to just give a shout out to David Souter because he, he really is one of my heroes. He he left um, um, way before um, he, he he needed to. Um, he's a, a model of a Roman um, kind of rectitude and civic virtue um who never um actually aspired to power for its own sake um our friend nadine Strassen, when she came on this website uh when this on this podcast actually we played a clip um um uh, at the beginning of that podcast with david Suter introducing nadine and me um at an event way back when um you and i both got an email recently from nadine saying she's going to be reaching out to david Souter and she's going to play him that uh, clip at, at, at some point so so Oh, and wouldn't it be cool if we could get him? I don't think he will because he's very shy, but get him on on the podcast. So, but one thing actually justices might do in their senior years is, again, what I called ceremonial and administrative, but, but also I call them public relations things. I, meeting with eighth graders, meeting with foreign dignitaries, talking to um, the likes of you and me and, and, and helping to explain to america what it's actually like to be on the supreme court the the pressures and the possibilities that would be such a useful function um, to perform and you're getting paid for life you you, to repeat jay my model is only so-called term limits strictly speaking you're a justice for life you have your title for life you're um, in your office and, and all sorts of genuine supreme court relevant related duties
0: yes and um also, just to make a final point, there, we can look at the fact that justices that sit on the court now have the option of resigning and pursuing careers in the private sector. It, it you know, William O. Douglas, or, or the public sector. William O'Douglas famously wanted to be president. Um, so, you know, I don't see how how there's really any evidence, um, and we have a lot of of situations that could have provided evidence. um, But there's no evidence that justices will be doing that. So I don't see that as a, as a particularly worrisome uh, part of this.
1: Okay. Okay. So I think we've done justice to, um, to to the judge, to the, to the judge. And, and to repeat, I adore Jay. I always have, he knows that, you know, he's been so generous to me over the years and since I pushed back very hard, but, but he, he started it, as it were, you know, he entered um, the public discourse judge. We'd be honored to have you, you know, um, uh, on a, a subsequent edition of this podcast uh, to, to push back against our pushback.
0: Yes. Okay. So I, I want to get to the commission, but I think we should mention at least some of the commentary that's come out of members of the commission. Um, and uh, so, We might mention, for example, um, Adam White. Who is
1: another friend of mine, and in fact, a friend of yours, um, uh, uh, he's a professor, um, but he also um, is an affiliate of AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, and in that capacity, he hosted, our audience might be interested to know, you and me at an AEI event, uh, you know, big conclave down in Georgia, was actually um, my book launch, and you and I drove down together. It was a fun road trip, you know, like, you know, Belushi and Aykroyd <laughs> or something, you know, <laughs> oh, w- w- without, without the misbehavior um, uh, and, and the, um, uh, the intoxicants. But, you know, you and me did a road trip uh, together down to Georgia at Adam Weiss Invitation, and it was actually there that I um, launched the book, May 3rd, May 4th of this year, um, which was the pub date. For the new book. And in fact, it was at that event right before um, uh, I did my book event. Andy and I, thanks to Adam White and others, uh, our friends at AEI, actually um, witnessed um, a presentation, a lunchtime presentation, in which um, Liz Cheney, um, for the first time, broke with Donald Trump and sort of told everyone he's toxic. We got to cut our connections to him. She crossed the Rubicon, was at an event with Paul Ryan, at the time, it was very hush hush, top secret. But immediately, and we, so we, Andy and I didn't say anything. But immediately afterwards, we started to see press reports about this. I think she, you know, her office probably um, um, made all this stuff public, and that's when Cheney broke with Trump. Oh, that was an interesting. You know, uh, events to, to be at lots of 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 politicos there, um, uh, conservative um, financiers, billionaires, um, um, uh, um, uh, public intellectuals. It was a very interesting place to be. Uh, Paul Ryan and, and Liz Cheney and 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 Andy and Akeel. You know, to that was the the, the, the the day of the book launch. In fact, but we were there at Adam's invitation. So he's our friend. Um, he's a commissioner um, and he said something that at first I didn't understand at all, but now I think maybe I understand what he was uh, saying uh, and I, I think I have some respectful um, counter arguments
0: Yeah, so he's quoted in the um, in the Washington Post as saying, uh, so here's what what it says. It says, um, some members said that the more they studied the issue, the less they were inclined toward ter- term limits. Adam White. Resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and assistant professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School said he had joined the commission thinking term limits might be a good idea. But he said he now thinks it could present, quote, profound risks, unquote. A system that would ensure each president gets to make at least two Supreme Court justices could further, quote, expand and entrench, unquote, presidential power, he said. So
1: um, you see now my vast powers of persuasion. <laughs> Before I opened my mouth, he was in favor of this. Then I opened my mouth and, and issue testimony. And now he says, well, now that I think about it, I'm on the other side. So, you know, I should have just shut up maybe. Um, but um, at first, I said, gee, I don't really get it quite. You know, presidents appoint justices, no matter how we slice and dice the, um, um, their, their terms of office. It, um, speaking of slicing and dicing, my first inclination um, was this, um, you know, uh, joke um, that um, I, I, uh, a friend of mine goes into a pizza parlor, you know, orders a, a medium cheese pizza. And uh, the clerk um, um, asks her, um, uh, you, want, you want this in um, eight slices or 12? Um, And and she says, oh, eight, please. I don't think I could eat 12. Um, (laughs) Like, no matter how you slice, it's the same medium sized pizza you eat. So so I'm thinking, okay, yeah, each present in an ordinary term is going to get two nominations. okay? And um, but they're going to. But um, and that's maybe less than today because they're, because they're serving longer than 18 year terms. So, so you get more nominations in a, a Mars um, uh, world, but they're serving for less time. You know, the slices are smaller. Um, so um. if, if you kind of multiply, you know, the the number of, of justices that you're putting on the court net net on average, by the years that they serve, it's going to, sort of equal a whole medium sized cheese pizza, no matter how you you slice it. So that was my first inclination. So how does that make presence too powerful? Um, But now that I thought about it um, a bit, here's maybe what he's saying. And Andy, you had, I think, a slightly different and interesting take as well in our offline conversations. Maybe he thinks that, um, The most influence a president has is on a justice in his or her early years on the court, because that's when the issues are most predictable, and a president can predict maybe what a justice is likely to think about issues on the docket today. Um, And so if you have more people on the court um, in your early years – Um, that's, you know, more power in the out years, the issues change. There's lots of drift and, and yes, your justices might be on the court for a long time, but they're going to drift away from your ideas as time passes and new issues arise. So maybe that's what he means.
0: Well, I Uh, think there's other things as well. I mean, uh, so, you know, presidential power, you know, is an interesting term, presidential power vis-a-vis what, so one example might be that he might be talking about is the advantages of incumbency, for example. So now, you know, the president, yes, it's true that 16 years later, you know, his his legacy will start to fade, perhaps, or, and as you say, he may have less influence on the justice, you know, at that point, or, or the, he has no influence, but the justice may be less like his policies at that point, but he's not going to be in office. He doesn't care in, in one sense. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here he'll have the, as he runs for re-election, he'll have these two appointments to point to, uh, you know, dependably, you know, and so forth. But I also think that, you know, it sounds bad, expanding and entrenching presidential power. But presidential power is is not really a a unitary uh device. It has various aspects of it and and it's we don't really want to total it up and say okay, this president has this much power numerically and that, that that that's a bad number and if we reduce the number a little bit, it'll be better. What matters is what are the powers? And I don't I don't know that in this case it's bad. In terms of what I was saying before, to the degree that the Supreme Court um, reflects the people, um, that's probably a good thing in a democracy. And the more that the elected officials get to weigh in on this, um, the more that will be true. On the other hand, if you have a a justice that's served for 40 years, they're very far removed from the electoral process. Right. Um, and so this is a way of, yes, it does. Even if they, even if they were not superannuated, even if they put on the court at age 23, you, you know, uh,
1: so they're only 63, which is, of course, a, a, an OK age to, to, to be, he says, at, at age 63. Uh, but they're still 40 years after the political coalition that that thought that they were you know a good person for the court but let me here's another way of putting it andy it's another version of the yeah it works in practice but doesn't work in theory because mm-hmm. states have stuff like 15 years and that's and, and 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 governors and that's not generally a problem in the best states and until recently the average Length of service for justice was around 18 years, uh, frankly. It's been in the modern era because, in part of um, of medical technology, geriatrics, that, that uh, the, the average length has um, a tenure of office has extended past that. So, 18 years worked just fine. Franklin Roosevelt, in his second and third terms alone, got, I don't know, seven, eight, nine appointments. Um, this would actually regularize it at four and and, and, and smooth it out a bit. So, I'm just not quite sure, again, that this um, theoretical objection really holds because for most of American history, you had um, um, pres- uh, uh, justices who, on average, didn't serve for longer than, um, um, uh, uh, on average, served less than 18 years, and presidents who were a- able to be elected and reelected. In fact, until Roosevelt, uh, infinitely reelected, and it wasn't a problem.
0: Okay, so now we're going to turn to the uh, commission's draft report itself. Um, as we read through the the report, there's you know it's a two hundred page report, but there's a, a thirty page subset that uh, that they've carved out that you can download that, um, and we'll post it that uh, addresses term limits specifically. And as the judge said, um, the there is a tone of being somewhat in favor of the proposal, uh, but they do, in all fairness, uh, you know, list various objections um, and and then argue for them. So um, some of them we've discussed already, but let me just summarize what what I saw as the objections, and then you can comment, uh, Akil, on those that you think are worthy of responding to. So the objections that they detailed, that some members of the commission or that the commission has noted that others uh, have raised, um, include the notion that the court's doctrine could be destabilized, Uh, the threat to judicial independence, I think we've discussed that, increase in presidential power, we discussed, Uh, create gamesmanship in certain cases, increase the total nomination bitterness uh, by having more nominations, the notion that it won't accomplish its objections because it won't fix congressional conflict, And then finally, the notion that some have raised that it could not be enacted by statute but would require a constitutional amendment, uh, which would itself be extremely difficult to achieve. And then there's all sorts of issues of what would you put in the amendment.
1: Right. So let's do a lightning round. That last one, I think we'll need to subdivide. Do, can you do it by mere statute? So, um but let's go through the others one by one. Let's imagine that you could just wave a magic wand and it would happen. But some people say, well, oh, it would be a bad idea if you could make it happen. Um, and then the final one is, can you make it happen by a mere statute? Or do you need an amendment? And that's going to be a little more complicated. But let's just do it. And I'll try to avoid filibustering to a quicker lightning round to so go through those one by one. And I'll try to um, hit the
0: nail on the head. Okay, so first one was destabilizing the court's doctrine.
1: Yeah, um, any rotation, I suppose, has that possibility. This regularizes it, so I would say that's more stable than the possibility of, you know, one president getting three in a single term. That's more destabilizing than, you know, I would say a smoothing out every president, basically every presidential term gets two, is, is more stable. And and you could say, well, it's more destabilizing because you're just going to have more rotation because uh, 18 years is shorter than the average term right now. And I say, yeah, but for most of American history, 18 years was about your your average standard uh, term of office. So, again, you know, oh, it doesn't work in um, um, it works in practice, but doesn't work in theory. So, okay, that's that one.
0: Right. But before we leave that one, though, because I know we want to do it quickly, but I, I think it raises an interesting question you've talked about the role of precedent versus um, you know, originalism and so forth. And uh, it seems to me that um, if you are a relatively new justice, um, you might be more inclined to uh, honor precedent. And with more rotation, there might be a, uh, with the notion that things are perhaps a little more unstable uh, in terms of the makeup of the, of the court, There might be uh, an inclination on the part of the court as a whole to, to honor precedent more. Do you think that would be the case? As possible, and
1: Hugo Black in his fir- first years on the court actually went along with all sorts of things that only later he realized were wrong. A famous case where he joined Cardozo early on, Palco said double jeopardy principles don't apply against states. And he later very famously said, oh, my God, the entire Bill of Rights applies against states. That's Hugo Black's, you know, the mature Hugo Black's, better idea. Um, um, but in his first term, he hadn't come up with it because he hadn't done all the work. And so, yes, maybe... Early on, justices are just going to go along with precedent because that's what they know, and they don't know much else. But after several years, they can begin to develop independent um, expertise. So that's possible. On the other side, you can say, oh, um, justices are going to be hesitant to admit that they themselves made mistakes. And so um, actually, the longer they're on the court, the less willing they're going to be to overturn their own precedence. So, So it could work either way. Hugo Black, much to his credit, um, uh, uh, changed his mind on things. He voted to uphold flag burning. Excuse me, um, a flag compulsory flag salutes um, in a case called Gobitis and um, then in 1941, I think. But then realized that was a mistake. Government can't force people to um, um, salute the flag. And this is uh, these were a uh, 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 students, um, and um, uh, the West Virginia Bar- versus Barnett case very famously overturned Gobitis and Hugo Black. Just um, uh, switched, and he said, "I was wrong the first time." Only two years had passed, but good for him. Our best justices have been open to actually not just reversing precedents, but reversing precedents that they were a part of, to changing their uh, their own mind. Uh, but not everyone is a Hugo Black.
0: So, did he say we had a bad case of gabitis? <laughs> okay. The next was the uh, threat to judicial independence. That one, I think we we. Tackled already, and
1: in fact, on the contrary, mine is a better version of judicial independence because right now people will time their resignations and um, at the end of their careers in in p- political and strategic ways. And as we said in uh, my uh, refutation of, of of J. Harvey Wilkinson, um, uh, eighteen years and tends to eliminate that strategic possibility because the best you can do is. You know, if you strategically resigned, what did you get? At best, a clone of yourself, which you could have gotten. You could have gotten the real thing yourself if you hadn't strategically resigned.
0: Next was uh, increased presidential power, which I think we... we I think we, we talked about. about with the Adam White. Right. Creating gamesmanship in, in certain cases. And I think under that category would also be included have bringing cases, test cases that are not the best test cases, because that's what you've got. Um, Well, again,
1: I think just to know what the rules are in advance, um, you can say it encourages gamesmanship. You can say it reduces gamesmanship um, uh, because right now, you you know, it's not as if people aren't making actuarial bets on the older justices and who's going to leave and and what would, you know. um, uh, uh, So so I, I promise you that there were lots of conservatives who were you know, trying to wait Ruth Bader Ginsburg out, and they they won. If she had made it another month, um, uh, uh, they would have lost. Um, um, But but I think no matter what the rules of the game are, no matter what, there will be some gamesmanship. Um, And so, you know, since you and I keep (laughs) reverting to baseball, uh, our comfort food um, analogy, um, you know, Yogi Berra said, gee, if you, you could only – and, of course, Yogi Berra didn't say, you know, everything that he said. Um, but Yogi Berra, you know, said if we could only move first base one foot, we get rid of all the close plays. There's <laughs> going to be some kind of gamesmanship no matter what the rules of the game are.
0: Okay, so continuing with the uh, objections that were voiced in the uh, report by the uh, commission, um, the next is that um, – the total amount of bitterness uh, in congressional confirmation hearings um will actually increase because there'll be more nominations,
1: yeah. So um, maybe there's some uh, law of physics, like, like conservation of mass, conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, and conservation of bitterness. Um, but I think since there are going to be more of them, yes, you could say there are going to be more of them, and they're going to be equally, as, each as nasty as today. That's what J. Harvey Ricklinson said. I said, but really, will each be as nasty, you know, given it's actually for a shorter period. I think they'll be a little bit less nasty. Um, and, uh, so, you know, maybe more of them, but less nasty and remember in years one and three, all always um which net net actually because now it can happen anytime you know or if it doesn't that generates bitterness oh it's year four and there's uh, mitch mcconnell's stonewalling of of garland or oh it's year four and there's mitch mcconnell's jamming through of amy amy coney barrett i think that generates more bitterness because it c- things could happen in years two and four whereas in mine they're only gonna you know really get started in years one and three
0: and then related to that um they said that uh in the end, this won't accomplish its objectives because it won't, they're asserting, fix the congressional conflict.
1: Yeah, well, it won't fix, you know, it, 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 it won't um, uh, 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 prevent climate change, um, and, um, and 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 it won't guarantee that my team wins the series next year. There are lots of problems in the world that it might not solve, um, and we're going to, but it will regular make more regular and routine the interactions between Congress and the, the Senate and the presidency and um, structure them so that they occur at the least angry times in our political cycle.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would add to, you know, we we had an entire podcast on the 18 different uh, benefits of, of this, uh, or, you know, of this plan. Yeah. And so if it does, it only does 17, you know, that, <laughs> you know, that yeah. doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Um, I think that isn't the only objective is to fix congressional conflict. And in any event, I don't think it's even one of the objectives. I think the you know, the the objective is to reduce the temperature. Yes. But ultimately it's up to Congress to fix, you know, its its problems. Right.
1: And up to the president. Look, everyone says, gee, you know, um, um, Mitch McConnell refused to do his job. His job as he sees it is to push back against the, the president that's what his constituents sent him to do that's what his party believes in but I promise you if Barack Obama had nominated Amy Coney Barrett Mitch McConnell would have said fine deal mm-hmm. um, so so the, the question is really even when uh, remember the Senate won't always be a um, uh, uh, Controlled by some, uh, the opposite party to the president, and uh, and there are going to be times when it's controlled by the president's party, and with enough of a margin of error that is going to be a, a sufficient love fest because they're going to be that party is going to be in control of the process. With Brett Kavanaugh, they didn't really control it by very many um, votes. They need to get almost all of, of of the Republicans on board, so that was going to be more fraught. But if the president's party has 54, 55 senators, it's going to probably be pretty easy if the president's party has you know fewer than 50. He or she, depending on who's present, is going to have to actually meet uh, an, uh, an opposition-controlled Senate halfway. Um, but that's just picking someone in the sweet spot, um, someone like, just to pick a name, Anthony Kennedy. Remember, um, Reagan, who faced back then a Democrat-controlled Senate. He first, you know, tossed out uh, tossed up Bork, and and that didn't go through. And then he initially was going to do D. H. Uh, uh, Douglas Ginsburg um, as a connection, I think, to to your family. In fact, um, yes. Andy, my daughter-in-law, um,
0: uh, Clark for him.
1: Yes, Saren clerked for him, and 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 that didn't go through for for various reasons. Not because the, actually the Democrats torpedoed it, um, um, and then uh, though they were able to um, uh, uh, um, uh, make a deal on on Kennedy, a kind of a Republican that Democrats you know could get on board for that. That Larry Tribe could say, ah, this is someone we can do business with.
0: And in fact, I think even right now, even though it's only you know, the minimal, you know, the minimal edge, if you want to call it an edge in the Senate, um, people are saying, Justice Breyer, step down. And they're, <laughs> the implicit in that is that we will be able to replace you with a candidate favorable to the democrats or at least acceptable to the democrats and then right. there's no margin for error and yet they believe that will take place. right right no 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 so it uh,
1: my friend Dalia Lithwick should not be
0: holding her breath for another sonia sotomayor
1: because i don't know if joe manchin is going to be up for that and he's the median senator and if not him Kristen cinema and you got to keep every single duck in line
0: okay and then finally and perhaps most you know, interestingly, um, on the list is the notion that, in order to accomplish something along the uh, the lines of what we've been talking about, it might require, according to the commission, a constitutional amendment. And yeah. I think that um, first of all, they they want to discuss whether whether or not it does. But if it did, then it's not going to happen.
1: I think that's perhaps right, although. Um, uh, behind a veil of ignorance, um, this proposal might be broadly acceptable. There are Republican justices I think who have said some nice things about it. Remember, uh, under, under this proposal, if the Republicans win in 2024, they get two guaranteed slots. And every time they win, they get two guaranteed at least nominations, of course. But um, but, but if they win and they carry the Senate, that's two for them, and 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 reliably so. This is not a partisan. Scheme. I want to remind our audience, as I reminded the commission, I initially um, uh, proposed this in the Washington Post in 2002 when there was a Republican president, George W. Bush, who had a Republican House of Representatives um, and the Senate was closely divided. That's where we are to, um, today, but um, mirror image. A Democratic president who has a Democratic Um, House by a small margin, but still, and a very closely divided Senate. I was for it when George W. Bush was president. I'm for it now um, when Joe Biden is president. My co-author for that project was the founder, co-founder and um, co-chair of the Federalist Society, Steve Calabrese, with whom I teach regularly. So this was not hatched as a Partisan scheme. It's purely prospective. It it, it phases in. It doesn't um, take anything away from Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito or um, Amy Coney Barrett or any of the existing justices um, who are described in my proposal as legacy justices. I come up with a scheme of legacy justices, the existing ones, um, the the, the new um, uh, regularized justices every 18 years. Um, um, the uh, senior or emeritus justices after um, uh, 18 years, and some uh, replacement justices that would be necessary if the court were ever truly short-staffed. If it was a nine-justice court and one person um, was uh, uh, resigned or, uh, um, uh, or, or passed away, Um, You'd have the the vacancy filled just for the rump term, as we talked about before, just the remaining years of um, whoever left the court out of 18. So different categories of justices. It's purely prospective. And so in theory, I can imagine, suppose you actually said, "Okay, Akhil, this is a good idea, but um, it's going to we're going to pass the law now and it's going to start being implemented in 2024 or 2028. I could imagine Republican buy-in, at least conceivably. I could imagine Republican buy-in, not just for a statute, but for a constitutional amendment um, that was behind a, a, a proverbial veil of ignorance. When we don't know which party it's going to favor in going forward.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm very dubious on that. First of all, I think if if you did do a constitutional amendment, they wouldn't have the discipline to stop at at uh, you know at term limits. There'd be a lot of other stuff thrown in there about. You know, the con like like uh, for example, there was a statute uh, proposed recently, which, to my mind, is clearly unconstitutional, saying that if the Senate doesn't approve uh, a-, a nomination, one hundred twenty days, it becomes co- confirmed. Yeah, that um, is a clearly unconstitutional statute. Right. So, yes. but they might put something like that in the amendment. You know, I, d- I that- don't
1: I don't think so because it's so obviously a daft, and and that might have been part of the statute proposed by Roe. Kanna, who took some of my ideas, 18-year-old, and, and mixed it. He didn't call me. He's a Yale Law School graduate. He didn't call me. Mushed it with a whole bunch of, you know, junk. Um, put his, Slapped his name on it so he was out there first. But that's not going anywhere precisely because he didn't do his homework. Bro, do your homework. That's, that's what I tried to teach you at Yale Law School. <laughs>
0: Okay, now in the in the podcast, what we when we talked about this earlier, um, you talked about doing this as a as you termed it a mere statute, and you mm-hmm. said it's clearly and easily constitutional. Well, clearly the commission uh, might believe that it's constitutional, but I don't think they believe it's clearly and easily a constitutional because they make they devote fully half of the uh, you know of the uh, document here to a discussion of the constitutionality or not.
1: Or or they may think at the end of the day, once you sort through all the arguments, they might think it's clearly constitutional and obviously constitutional, but not unanimously so. Some of our commissioners aren't... uh convinced but but that wouldn't mean it wasn't you know pretty clear and unanimous you know at the end of the day you know if if the score is seven to three it's pretty clear you know and obvious who won even though um uh uh uh, if if a a vote on a court was seven to two it's pretty clear who won the court decision even if it weren't unanimous so so um so let's hear what let's hear what the the actually the, the the concerns are let's go through them Um, we're taking this final point. Oh, you need an amendment and that we're going to break it down into its individual components and see if any of them actually is really a a close one.
0: Well, I think they have, um, you know, three, three points. Okay. Um, just to, to summarize, we can summarize them and then maybe you can go through them. One is they say that the, uh, the good behavior clause, they take, they, they discuss the, the good behavior clause, Mm -hmm. um, uh, secondly, in the um, the Appointments Clause, they say that something to the effect that it creates a separate office of Supreme Court justice. Okay. Um, and that the Constitution, perhaps, this is my gloss on what they said, um, defines it in ways that puts it beyond the reach of Congress in certain ways. Okay. Certain, in certain, certain ways. ways. Okay. Um, so that's, that's the... Uh, the second one, and sort of a subset of that, would be something I alluded to earlier that participating in the court's unbank decisions is intrinsic to the position of Supreme Court justice, okay. such that removing that by statute would exceed Congress's okay. authority. Okay. Um, also, a notion of all the justices having to be, you know, equal um, yes. in some sense. And um, okay. now, of course, okay. you know, the question might arise: Well, is it equal if we say to you know? You're all going to have this happen to you after 18 years, yes. even though they're not all at the same point in their term. Good, yes. um, okay. Then they, there's an argument that they make from history that um, there've been over 200 amendments introduced, according to the according to the uh, document here, saying uh, calling for term limits in one form or another, or so-called mm-hmm. term limits, but not until. 2020 was a statute actually proposed. So the notion that that people have believed that it has required an amendment for much of the, uh, you know, life of the Republic. So let's go through those one by one. Yes. Okay. So the first one
1: refers to the good behavior clause, right? And remember in under the AMAR plan, you are a justice for life for good behavior. You uh, just to repeat, you have your title, You have your salary, undiminished salary, and you have your duties and responsibilities as a justice on the Supreme Court. You're a justice for life. So strictly speaking, this isn't term limits. Your term is for life.
0: So what is the the argument of those that believe that the good behavior clause, um, you know, is I, I think
1: they, that one is pretty easy. They just, they've been faked out by the, the label term limits or something and haven't paid close attention to the way in which this is rather carefully lawyered to avoid just that concern. It's someone I, I, I believe in um, life tenure. I'm the, the beneficiary of it in an, another kind of institution. And, uh, and, and I promise you, you know, if, if I'm a professor for life, And I get paid for life and they want to adjust my um, job description in various ways, saying, well, Amar, after a certain point, actually, um, you don't teach in the classroom, you do other stuff. I would say, you know, that's perfectly fine by me. That's that's a fair deal, especially if they don't change the rules on me in the middle of the game. But that's what um, they're proposing before I even accept my life tenure position as professor um, of law at Yale Law School.
0: So the, uh, this relevant sentence here, I think, is um, the debate hinges on the nature of the office of justice of the Supreme Court that the Constitution creates mm-hmm. and whether a statute that contemplates that the justices' duties will change after 18 years removes them from that office in mm-hmm. violation of the good. Right, behavior.
1: and of course it doesn't remove them for that office. Again, in, in n- n- name, in uh, uh, um, a salary, um, uh, or even in substance and duties um, because you're just, you're doing a different sort of thing as a Supreme court justice, Supreme court justices do many things. Um, and uh, I'm saying, Oh, you concentrate on the on bond cases in your first 18 years. And after that, you concentrate on other things you're still available to do on bonds when, when needed. Um, but you do other things. Um, another uh, 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 way of, 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 of of putting this point is um t- suppose i said to you i actually have in the history of american jurisprudence one person clearly on my side on this very issue who would be other than uh, and, uh, the best person for me to have maybe george washington of course because it's washington's president uh washington's constitution um as i as i talk about in uh, the words that made us but but this is a technical point about Article Three, the Judiciary. Washington looms larger about Article Two, powers and duties, of the presidency. So if I if I if I had to have one, I could have only one person, who would be the best person to have? John Marshall. Absolutely. And it turns out, oh, I've got Marshall McLuhan right here. You, you know, why can't real life be like this? That's a Woody Allen reference yes. for the rest John of you. John Marshall years. McLuhan. <laughs> John Marshall McLuhan, exactly. And Andy is laughing because he he's a big Woody Allen fan. Yes, um, it's hard so, to be
0: one these days. But, uh. um,
1: but, But you know, why can't real life be like this? Okay. Um, the, the, at the end of the uh, john adams administration a whole bunch of new judgeships were added the so-called midnight judges and washington uh, and adams um, is swept out of office jefferson comes in and his allies in congress in a single page basically just say we repeal that earlier law like back to um, uh, not a zero um, and all these there were 16 new federal judgeships that were created under the so-called Midnight Judges Law, Article III Judgeships, and the new law reported to get rid of all of them. Um, and um, John Marshall took the position, actually, um, that, uh, well, you could take away their jurisdiction um, because that, they don't have a vested right to that. Um, uh, just like there's not actually a vested right to sit on each and every on banc case. If there were, you couldn't mandate recusal rules or things like that. So so John Marshall said you can take away their jurisdiction. That's true. Um, but here's what you can't take away. Their title, they are, and their, their salary. And if a new statute comes along and gives them jurisdiction, you don't need some new appointment. They are judges, not justices, but judges for life um, with guaranteed salaries for life and as long as those things are met you can change their their duties you can give them less responsibility or presumably more responsibilities that can be modified Um, but the key says john marshall is you are not improperly removing them if they keep their titles and their guaranteed salary that was john marshall's position on yes it's technically a different issue wasn't the supreme court it was lower federal courts Oh, but it's really close, and I got John freaking Marshall on my side. Who you got?
0: And then they talk about the 1934 case of Booth versus United States, um, uh-huh. where uh, it's what they say there is Booth distinguishes between a change in duties, which is within the power of Congress, and removal from office or reduction in compensation, which are not.
1: And that's pretty similar to what I said. Now they also say Booth isn't completely a, they on step all fours, rather
0: than yeah. You know,
1: yeah, it's right. somewhat distinguishable, but oh, it's more on my side than anyone else's. I, you know, I'll take it. So now I got Marshall and you know Booth.
0: Mm-hmm. And then there was another case later. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, so I think that the, you know, for the, for people that are that are you know more uh, like me, amateurs in the in this department, I think it's important to point out that Congress has been regulating the duties of the justices. You know, since the founding um,
1: correct and even more at the founding the main job of a Supreme Court justice was not actually to sit on bunk and and J Harvey Wilson said, oh you need a majority you know you, you don't want a, a, just a court that's evenly divided of course at the founding the, the court was had six members uh, an, an even number um, and why did it have six members as I explained in my testimony. Um, Because at the founding, the most important thing that Supreme Court justices did was actually ride circuit. And there were three circuits and six justices divided evenly by three, two justices per circuit. And the whole idea was to bring justice to every man's door. Americans lost the – excuse me, uh, England lost America, lost the American Revolution, because England wasn't paying attention to the back country, to the hinterlands, um, to its extended um, uh, uh, affiliates. And Americans realized we have to maintain the allegiance of people in our back country. It's a big, big country. So our Supreme Court justices, this is the first Judiciary Act passed by Congress, regulating the Supreme Court, deciding, for example, how many justices are there going to be, six, and telling them what to do, um, uh, which is what my you know envisioned statute would do, So sort of um, uh, modify the, the duty roster of the justices. But the Judiciary Act of 1789... Um, Backed by Oliver Ellsworth, who will later become, sponsored by Senator Oliver Ellsworth, who will later become Chief Justice of the United States. Backed by James Madison and the House of Representatives. Signed into law by George Washington. That statute says 10 months of the year, basically, you're going to be riding circuit. Two months a year, you're going to be sitting in the national capital, hearing on banc cases with the other justices. So I'm saying, gee, if that was okay, and it surely was, at the founding and, and John Marshall and his and his um, uh, compatriots say all that was okay, in the companion case to Marbury versus Madison, called Stewart versus Laird, upholding circuit writing. If it's okay for the first Congress to say ten months a year in um, uh, writing circuit and two months sitting on bank. What's wrong with the current Congress saying first eighteen years really concentrate on the on-bank stuff? After that, concentrate on other things, including kind of riding circuit and going around and and explaining the Supreme Court to people in the
0: hinterlands. Really, I mean, you know, if the Supreme Court meets, you know, seven or eight months a year now, um, and pretty much you're spending your whole time on-bank, and when you're doing that, and you're doing that for uh, uh, eighteen years so you're spending 144 months you know on bank so uh, whereas at the founding you would have had to be on the court for 72 years in order to have that much um un- <laughs> right. so how can yeah, you say yeah. that they're that they're removing you know the on bank function function of the court, of the justice yeah. through this so
1: yep 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 so 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 um, the duties of the supreme court have always involved more than on bank um, I allow my um, uh, retired just, my, me, my emeritus justices, um, my senior justices to sit on Banque where necessary, where the court is short staffed. But they're doing other things that are core Supreme Court functions in my world, helping with docket management, certiorari, administrative things um, ceremonial things, but circuit writing, actually, um, getting the Supreme court's message out there to the hinterlands, listening to people in the hinterlands and carrying their thoughts back to the center and taking the center's ideas and, and, and explaining them to to folks in the periphery. That's a core Supreme court function and I'm keeping it. And remember the precise duties in my envisioned statute, um, of senior justices, um, are going to be determined in part by the current um active justices in their first eighteen years, they're going to promulgate and from time to time modify the duty roster.
0: yeah, I think the the point is not so much whether um, you know we if we look at the ju- at the duties of the justices now, it's easy looking at it only through the prism of today to say, well, look. This is obviously what justices of the Supreme Court do, because that's what they spend their time doing, and that's what we read about in the papers all the time. But from a constitutional point of view, that isn't what they spent all their time doing at the founding. And it's you know, Congress had the had the right and the ability to decide what it is they spend their time.
1: And doing. and maybe actually, and this is what I came to see in researching the new book. There was a brilliance in that because actually we want. It's a big country, and there's a lot of anxiety that I uh, – who are these people making the important decisions in my name? I never see them. So, so there was wisdom in circuit writing, even though it was a real hassle. And maybe, actually, a Supreme Court whose um, popularity is lower now than it has been um, in other decades would benefit – from actually having some of its members actually get out and about and and mingle and interact. And if that's so, then the question is, well, who should do that when in their Supreme Court service? And I think it's a really um, sensible idea to say, do it after you sat on Bonk you know, for 18 years, when you really know what that's all about. And then afterwards, you should spend, it's, a, it's a good and sensible use of Supreme Court resources to spend time actually going out and about and, and, and listening to the hinterlands, carrying back their concerns, and also telling them, look, here's why we decided this case and that case and the other case, I was actually on the, uh, you know, on that decision. And, and here's what we decided, and here's why we decided it.
0: So, um, you know, of course, all of that goes to the question of whether it's a good policy more so than whether it's constitutional. Well, no, 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 it goes to
1: whether actually they really, I'm um, um, taking seriously good behavior. Yes, I am. You get your lifetime tenure and your lifetime title and taking seriously that you're, you're appointed to one Supreme Court. I'm taking that very seriously. I'm just saying one Supreme Court um, it 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 does many things. It doesn't just do on bank decision making. So if we- and, and, and and this is connected. You asked and there was another point that you said. Well, am I treating the justices equally? Mm-hmm. Now the chief is a different position. Um, although in my world, actually, I, one little feature you don't have to have it, but it, you you could just make the chief the the person in his or her last two years of of uh, on their eighteen year. Um, stint of on box service, full and active service. Um, and that would be even more equal than today. But let's just put aside the chief for a minute. Am I treating the others equally? From one point of view, no. Oh, at a certain and pushing some people off. Okay, that's not equal. But from another point of view, at the time of your commissioning, every single uh, justice going forward has the exact same package. Every single one. What could be more equal than that? And indeed, in mind, you're going to be eligible to be chief justice in your last two years, which you're not today. So even more equal than um, the, the current model. And you can say, oh, there was this other thing. Oh, but to be a, a Supreme Court justice, you really have to be able to sit on bunk. As we talked about before, you can, just not as regularly, just you, you pinch hitting. And today, does anyone really think Congress can't say, gee, um, here are mandatory recusal rules if, you know, you, you can't sit in a case where you have a big um, uh, uh, financial interest, some shares in some company that's a litigant. And I, surely the, court, uh, the Congress could say, oh, even if, it, if you don't own it, if your spouse owns um, uh, lots of shares in some company that's litigating before the court, you must recuse yourself. Well, if Congress can do that. Why can't it have a recusal rule saying, gee, if you've sat 18 years, you should in general should recuse yourself. It's turn taking unless you're absolutely needed um, to to hear the case. You know, we're going to let other people take a turn. We have a mandatory recusal rule that you should butt out of uh, or stay out of this part of the Supreme court's um, um, operation and do something else instead.
0: If I'm going to look at the, at the sort of history of con- congressional regulation of the court. Um, the one thing that I don't think I find is that the duties change over time, and that's certainly in the essence of what this statute. Oh no,
1: you will. You will absolutely. No, what I mean
0: for for a given justice.
1: No, no, you will absolutely find all of that, and it's in U.S. Code if you choose to take senior status. Okay, ah, so if you choose so to, to do it. Right, but there are statutes that say you remain a Supreme Court justice, you don't need to be reappointed, you don't need to be re- by a president, you don't need to be reconfirmed by the Senate, you have one Supreme Court commission that entitles you by statute, even after you stepped off the Supreme Court, to ride circuit, which is actually what Justice Souter does, what Justice... Um, uh, O'Connor used to do what um, most actually retired justices have chosen to do since the mid 1930s. So the statutes actually do provide um, for that. They, they just don't say you must step down at a certain time, but they say you may. And as Supreme Court, a senior Supreme Court justice, you have certain judicial um, uh, rights and responsibilities.
0: And what about the uh, historical argument? The fact that uh, it's been, you know, when people have attempted to do something like this in the past, it's always been by uh, introducing amendments rather than statutes. Does that have any, any. Well, I don't don't know
1: if it has always been so. I want to check on that. They say it.
0: I'm taking the commission. Hold on. So I'm going to make
1: about four or five arguments, you know, in the alternative. Mm -hmm. I don't own a dog. It didn't bite you. You did first. Okay. so I'm not sure that that's uh, truthfully. And in fact, I'm a little skeptical. Um, But but maybe. Um, So um, remember, my proposal is about certain things that are very modern phenomena. Uh, uh, A court whose membership basically has hardened at nine. That's only... after the 1930s, when the court-packing plan by Roosevelt was was rejected, so for much of the early period, maybe you don't you didn't have this. You had other ways of thinking about um, the court, including changing the size of the court. But now, actually, that lever has hardened up. Um, the court membership had been uh, started at six, went as low as five, statutorily at least. Up to 10, but now it's hardened at 9, and 9 connects to 18 in a certain very specific way. Mine is also a proposal about another modern phenomenon. People are living much longer than before, and about several other modern phenomena. The the temptation of of each party in an arms race to go younger and younger um, for um, uh, initial appointment, Um, And all sorts of nastiness in in the confirmation hearing, sometimes in years two and years four. So mine is actually responding to certain relative and and the justices are living much longer than before. Mine is actually responding to certain things that are fairly recent phenomenon. So it's not a total surprise that no one proposed this exact package by a mere statute Mm -hmm. before. Um, But that doesn't mean that people thought about it thought about my alternative and said, ah, that's obviously unconstitutional. You know, truthfully, maybe they weren't very clever. They had just hadn't thought about things. And, and, and um, so, look, until 1910, was anyone proposing a federal department of environmental management? Maybe not, maybe because people weren't thinking about the environment, but that doesn't mean that Congress can't pass an EPA law creating a cabinet position, you know, as um, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency Administrator. Um, uh um uh, before there's nuclear power no one is pr- proposing a nuclear regulatory commission in Congress but surely that doesn't mean it's unconstitutional um, let me be autobiographical here i hadn't thought through in 2002 all the ways in which the, uh, the statutory scheme should work um um so it's just it, it, so the, the one thing that you can't say is this proposal, Mars proposal, really has actually. Um, uh, it's been, the reason that we are ha- only seeing it now is because it was so obviously unconstitutional that people didn't even think about it. No, they just hadn't quite thought through maybe all the issues, especially as they currently present themselves. Um, um, I actually think it's 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 a very clever system, and and there are many other things that today we do. Um, that we didn't do at the founding. One of them, for example, I talk about in a book, America's Unwritten Constitution, is called the Saxby Fix. Here's how the Saxby Fix um, uh, works. The Constitution says that you can't, um, that that someone um, who was, let's say, in the Senate can't be appointed to a cabinet position um, uh, where the salary has been um, increased during the, the senator's term. And so you might think, well, gee, if their ordinary cost of living increases, the senator, a sitting senator is sort of never eligible for that position, even if she or he is the best person. Hillary Clinton was a senator from New York, but the secretary of state's salary had actually gone up. um, um, And so she's ineligible. No. Um, At a certain point in the late 19th century, uh, Congress came up with a thing called the Saksby fix. Um, which we now call the B Fix. It was originally designed, I think, for Philander Knox in the Grant administration or something. They say, actually, you can appoint someone who is a current senator to um, a cabinet position for which the salary is increased so long as the newly appointed senator, now cabinet officer, doesn't benefit from the increase, reverts back to the, the old salary at the beginning of their Senate term. And that fulfills the purpose of the constitutional clause and it's sensible because it means that the president can really pick someone who might be the best person uh, a sitting senator um, for the job now i promise you just logically it is true that um, uh, that proposal at a certain point was proposed for the first time Mm -hmm. Um, um, and before that by definition it wasn't proposed now here's what i'm guessing it's possibly the case that it wasn't proposed in the first decade, or the second, or the third, or the fourth, um, because the, and the issue didn't arise because they didn't have let's say cost of living increases, or you know automatic, or other things. So at a certain point, they said, ah, this is actually an issue. Oh, but here's a way of. Of solving it actually satisfies the deep spirit of the relevant constitutional clause at question. And today, Saxby Fix has been done by Republican presidents and Democratic presidents over more than 100 years. It, it's very much a part of our system, but there was a time when it wasn't. And someone could have said, gee, if this was so obviously constitutional, why wasn't it proposed 50 years ago? And the answer might be, because people hadn't thought about it carefully 15 years ago, but now we are. And on reflection, it's perfectly okay.
0: Yeah, I I, I get that, and I, that's a that's a very good point. I do think that uh, the committee is going a little further, saying it's not just that nobody proposed it, but that when but that people did propose it, but when they proposed it, they proposed it as an amendment. Because maybe they proposed what they, was strictly right.
1: speaking term limits rather right. than term limits so called. Right.
0: We'd have to go look at it. That's right. Right. Yeah. And then finally, we should wrap up. But I think the the final thing they say is, well, you know, you might be right, Professor Mar or whoever, you know, whatever proponent of this you you know you are, um, but the fact that some people uh, aren't sure means that we're better off going with an amendment. So that way, there's no instability. That you know, you don't want the court to. Uh, you know, have its decisions invalidated by itself, you know, or something like that, or have this kind of situation.
1: So I got asked this question and my hearings, I said, that I see it. I can, I can see that argument. Let me go through the different possibilities. One, if anyone objects anywhere then we should on a constitutional grounds, no matter, you know, how, um, um, uh, uh, inexpert that person is and how implausible the argument is you know that's an absolute term. Well, that can't be right anyone you know on, on twitter can just come up with something okay so that's that's a strong so then you say if um, a substantial portion of genuine experts say this is clearly unconstitutional um, that should be, just be a conversation stopper and I say you could take that position um, I don't think that's actually where we are now. I don't know if there's a substantial portion of, cle- of genuinely expert people um, who say it's clearly unconstitutional. Um, and you'd want to weigh that against people on the other side who are experts who say not only is it constitutional, it's clearly and obviously constitutional, and they include, you know, a Amar, okay? But you could say, gee, if there's any doubt by a substi- I'm sorry, if there's a very strong doubt um, indeed, fierce con- constitutional opposition, even by a minority of experts, but they really are experts. That should be um, get, um, uh, at the end of the conversation. You could take that position. That's not a crazy position. We, you know, just err on the side of caution. Another position would be pass the, if the majority of real experts think that this is you know obviously and easily constitutional. Um, yes, there's a minority on the other side, but but actually um, uh, 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 if you, the senators and the members of the House of Representatives and the president are convinced um, by – and your staffs, many of whom went to law school, are actually convinced that the majority of experts are actually correct, there's nothing wrong with passing that statute in consummate good faith you think is constitutional – it will come before the court. And that's not an awkwardness. The court will decide, I mean, maybe a little bit of an awkwardness, but the court would decide, for example, if there was some law affecting compensation of justices, they would ultimately decide whether that was okay or not, or law regulating the size of the court or the um, uh, um, what, um, when it sits or what the rules of civil procedure are or criminal procedure evidence. The court decides all sorts of things involving the court itself and 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 if and they think it's unconstitutional, they're perfectly capable of invalidating it. I'm happy to make big bets with people in that in, in that world. You know, I, I, I want my friends on the other side to make very big bets because I think I'm going to win that um, because I think the justices themselves are going to be on my side of this because it's the right argument, because I've actually thought about this for 20 years at least, and I teach federal courts. I'm actually an expert. I know there's some experts on the other side. Um, I don't know how emphatic they might be, whether they're dubitante or they think this is obviously unconstitutional. I've tried to go through every argument one by one on the merits and tell you why I don't think it actually works. So I like my odds going forward, but I there is a perfectly valid position, G, if we're not sure. But but if most experts actually Think it, it, it's it's easily and obviously okay. Let's do it because there are some policy advantages of this. We are, we're we're convinced by the general idea. We just you know an, an amendment is very difficult, and let's and let the Supreme Court decide. Um, in some ways, then, it's it's kind of it, like a, it,
0: an entrepreneurial versus a organizational argument. You know, Steve Jobs would say that uh, he doesn't you know do market research, he doesn't care you know, what, what the majority of people say, is because people don't haven't, they don't know yet that they want this, you know, um, but I know, I, Steve Jobs, know that it's better, and, and people will want it. And so know. here we come back to um, what we've talked about
1: on many episodes before, we're going to come back to, you know, claims of expertise, you know, mm-hmm. Steve Jobs says, like, I thought about this more. I'm going to go with my gut. I'm Steve jobs and I've got a pretty good track record. Um, and I'm, I'm going to, and I'm saying, gee, if you're not sure, um, it first, I've tried to give you my best sense of the arguments on the merits, my fellow citizens, audience of this podcast, and you can, you know, decide whether they are persuasive. Um, um I want you to hear the arguments of the opponents as they materialize. if, if, if if this thing even begins to have some traction, there are going to be additional hearings. They're going to be in the Congress itself. And I'm hoping I'll be asked to testify and, and someone else will testify and, and the issues will be sharpened even further. And boy, Andy, you've given me a good workout here. I think I'm kind of ready, you know, for, for that because we we've gone through, um, in a much deeper way than we did in our earlier conversations, you know, some of the fine grained, um, objections. Um, but, but um, Here's the reality: People are going to, you know, make decisions for themselves, which, in which argument they think is more persuasive. But some people at the margins are also going to be influenced. By ad hominems, by claims of expertise. Well, you know how uh, how many? Ex- what do the experts really think? What's the distribution, you know, among the experts? You know, which experts have better track records in this domain? You know, federal courts or constitutional law and. And that's fair game, which is why I want people to know what my track record is, you know, um, the Saber metrics, citation counts, and all the rest, because I think I have a really pretty good track record. Um, and it will matter whether the opponents are Larry Tribe and R- Richard Fallon, who are really preeminent scholars at Harvard Law School. If they get up and say, we think this is clearly and obviously unconstitutional, oh that's a different conversation than if they get up and say we're not so sure um you know we're kind of on the fence um and that's a different conversation uh between uh versus uh, just people who aren't richard fallon who, who i really have so much respect for he's on the commission of professor at harvard law school or larry tribe you know um for whom i have so much respect but people who are um, not quite at, at that um, uh, level of accomplishment and, and expertise saying it's clearly an obvious unconstitutional so to be continued yes. um, um, we'll, we'll we'll just have to see at the end of the day when the commission finally issues a report and if there's a dissent or something who wants to put their name to the claim that um uh, that this is you know pretty clearly um, invalid in in we you know we're good.
0: I think we've we've done a good thing here by actually not just repeating you know your arguments, but but taking on the opposition arguments and saying yeah. you know listening to them, giving them credence where they merit it, and it's way different from saying oh it's obvious. You know, yeah. but but we of actually course. you know we actually that was inclusive.
1: I only had so much space. No, no, but, not just you, yeah. but I mean
0: even yeah. you know like in that editorial, that op-ed from from the from the judge in the Fourth Circuit. You know, he's saying yeah, oh this only is so the way much it you can, it can do in an op-ed, which yeah. is why we
1: have the podcast and why people are invited. Um, if Adam White wants to come, you know, on our podcast, Oh, we will welcome you. If uh, judge Wilkinson wants to come on the podcast, we'd be delighted to give you time to uh, elaborate your arguments um, in,
0: in, in a more fulsome way. That'd be great. But next week, hopefully back to books. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. Thank you.